The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. If you're a guest with us, by the way, for the first time, we have these books on the table out there. Those are for you to take. Like, for real, take them all. I don't need them. I would love for you to have them. There's a part of how we kind of think through the Christian life and exploring Jesus. Um, We good? Okay. Uh, One one announcement for us in... uh, our life together is some of you are obviously aware we're um, wearing the masks. Uh, if you've seen any signage around here, the Hope Center has changed their policies on mask wearing. They don't they no longer require masks for the Hope Center. Um, but uh, and having talked with them, that was their work in consultation with the head of uh, the Department of Health for Manchester. Um, so what I would like to do is we should uh, we need to call a family meeting to kind of talk about that stuff, how we're going to do that together. Because um, the Hope Center, uh, their dynamics of what they're choosing to do with their mask policies are going to be a little bit different than ours. Um, we have made a priority of saying uh, we are okay with, since we don't do children's ministry, we're okay with kids being in the service. We love kids being in the service, but that means that we're inviting and saying, hey, you guys should be, a, if, you, if you're comfortable, kids should be in here. Um, that's a large, uh, potentially large population of unvaccinated people or people who have not had the chance to be vaccinated. And so it creates a certain um, dance of policies that we need to talk through. Um, we certainly cannot require people to be vaccinated. Um, I, uh, you know, if you have opinions about that, that's obviously uh, yours to hold. Uh, the state as a whole is around 54% one vaccine shot, 61% or higher for a vaccine fully vaccinated. We're down to about 30 cases a day. So we're going to kind of talk through all of that data. I'm working to talk, my, I've talked to my brother-in-law, who's a, actually an expert in pediatric epidemiology, um, through some of this stuff. I'm trying to talk to the Manchester Department of Health, and I want to bring that information to us and just like, what do we want to do as a church? Uh, how do we want to process through this? It's going to be dynamic in how our poli- the policies are going to be changing. I mean, it kind of like this time last year, it was like masks on, masks off, do it six feet, nine feet, uh, all that stuff. And we're just going to have to work through this together. I know that as we've worked through this over the last year that we've been totally chill about like we're not going to be like ultra one side or the other. Everybody is free to hold their opinion, but we're holding our opinion in deferential love for each other. So I don't know where everybody is on that. <laughs> And so that's why I'm saying we need to have a meeting because I don't really know what's the best policy for us moving forward. Um, so 7 o'clock next Sunday, um, just for the people in the, in the room, I know that I'm just kind of like dropping a family meeting on you and that's like a sudden shock. Would it be possible to get like one representative of every family here next Sunday night at 7 o'clock? Can I get a sh- show of hands? Like, is that possible? Yeah. Okay. All right, especially you guys. Sean's going to be there too. Um, sorry, I'm not trying to call anybody out. Um, yes, so, that, uh, so if that's possible, I would love that just so that we can just have a frank conversation and say, and if you're at home, by the way, uh, this is especially for you. I really would appreciate if, you, if you're at home watching the live stream. I will make an email and announcement on Facebook just saying, hey, I really do want to hear from people because um, how we handle our kids in the service vaccination, masks, all that stuff. We just need to have a kind of family meeting about all that. So um, that's, that's the plan. So if we can just say, 
next Sunday night, 7 o'clock. We've got permission to use it. We'll just meet right up here. Um, I would really, really appreciate it. Um, so everybody cool with that? So for the time being, we're going to keep doing a mass. We're going to talk about our policy moving forward at that meeting. That being said, you guys, uh, if you have a Bible, uh, turn to the book of Galatians. We're going to turn over to Galatians chapter 6. We are close to ending our sermon series in the book of Galatians. Uh, we have two sermons left today and next week, and then we will be saying goodbye to this book that we have gotten so used to being around. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read for us from Galatians 6. We're going to go over Galatians 6, 1 through 10, and then uh, we'll pray, and then we'll jump into this together. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spiritual spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So let's pray. Father, as we look at these words, I pray that um, the way they mark out our life together in the Spirit would help us to be a people that live and love like Jesus and so reflect who he is, who you love to the neighbors and world around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, this last week, uh, I'm sure some of you might have seen this in the news, uh, Juneteenth was uh, signed into law as a federal holiday. Uh, Juneteenth, uh, for those of you who are not aware, um, is effectively the celebration. It's not the actual end of slavery in America, but is a celebration of the end of slavery. Uh, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, and then what happened, Juneteenth is a celebration of this moment in history. It took a while. They didn't have the internet back then, surprisingly, uh, or Wi-Fi, or GPS, any of that stuff. They didn't have any of that. Um, Abraham Lincoln signs this Emancipation Proclamation, and it takes about two years for that information to reach what would have been one of the furthest outposts in the, the United States at the time. Um, in the town, uh, let's see, I don't think I wrote the town down. I'm sorry? Galveston. I, I thought I had it in my notes. I'd read it this last week. There we go. Galveston, Texas, um, where there is nearly 200,000 slaves in Texas itself, one of the furthest parts of the Union. On June 19th, Union Major, 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 Major General Jordan Granger, Granger arrived in the island of Galveston. See, it's in my notes there. I should have just read a little further. Um, and read Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation effectively spreading the news of the freedom of all slaves in the United States to all people. And so that's why it has been signed into law as uh, the celebration of the end. It's not the actual one, but it's a celebration of the end. Why do I bring that up? The reason I bring that up is because the book of Galatians has held a very strong place within the African-American experience in America. And it's been on my mind this last week as we've kind of been ending this book. 
You think about the book of Galatians, right? It has, you have in Galatians 3.28, right? There is neither slave nor free. Certainly that meant something to the African-Americans who were believers under slavery in America. Or, for example, Galatians 5, verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You can imagine for the African-American experience in America, that held a certain meaning that we read and don't experience in the same way. Certainly the, Galatian, the book of Galatians, it held a very prominent place in the African-American mind, but they were not just looking at the obvious passages. They were doing some extremely rich thinking on the book of Galatians, which came to mind as we're coming to this passage this Sunday, ending the book of Galatians. In this book, um, in one book by uh, the scholar Lisa M. Bowens, she wrote a book this last year called African-American Readings of Paul, Reception, Resistance, and Transformation. She makes this note on Galatians 6, verse 2, which is what we're reading this morning. She writes, um, black slaves argued that by placing burdens upon enslaved Africans and creating heavy chains of slavery and oppression, white slaveholders do the opposite of what the apostle commanded. Through their citation and interpretation of Galatians 6.2, that's what we're looking at this morning, these enslaved petitioners adamantly decreed that slavery counteracts Christian behavior for whites should not carry the burdens of their black brothers or sisters. Instead, they create them. They were appealing to a passage that said, let us carry each other's burdens. But in fact, actually, you're adding to our burdens by not, by, and then prohibiting us from obeying this command. Can you imagine the, the, the people burdened by slavery pleading for liberation so they could gladly take the burdens of their family in Jesus? What a profound reading of this passage as we're getting into the very end of the book of Galatians. And the reason I bring this up, not to be political or anything like that, the reason I bring it up is because what we read in this passage is often at the heart of why we struggle with our life together in Jesus. Because we look at the Bible and we say, it should be like this. And then we look at our lives together and we see it is often disappointing like this. <laughs> so we can look at a passage like this and say, I wish I lived in a church that did this. Or I wish our church did a better job of this. Or maybe I wish my experience at church at this point in my life, when I had a heavy burden, had been like this, it would have been different or better. And in fact, that's why this passage is here. Because the, the, the church in Galatia, if you've learned anything from our series in Galatians, they were boneheads, right? They did not have their, uh, their ducks in a row. They had no idea. I mean, bro, you might think that I'm like a good pastor and Peter and David are great pastors, but they had an apostle. <laughs> they had an apostle who saw Jesus and they still did not have their act together. They had to have the apostle himself write them to say, hey, listen, you guys need to act like Jesus. <laughs> I know it's simple. It's like Christianity 101. But that's why this passage is here, so that as we fail and living out what it means to be like Jesus, we have this passage reminding us, calling us back again, you are to be a people filled by the Spirit to live like Jesus, to be a community like Jesus. That's what true freedom is. True freedom is to be indwelt by the living God, by the Spirit himself. So Paul's talked about that. He's going to continue to talk about that in this passage. It is to be filled by the Spirit, to experience true freedom to then be like Jesus, not to do what we want, not to kind of fill our, our bucket list of like, well, now that I'm free from sin and shame, I can kind of do whatever I want. It is, in fact, to live like Jesus. That's what is going on in this passage, right? The true freedom that Jesus gives us 
by bearing our burdens on the cross, by freeing us from sin and shame, is to give us an invitation by his spirit to be like him. So here's the main point of this passage, and we're going to get jumping into it together. Main point of this passage, by the power of the spirit, love like Jesus to be a community like Jesus. That's, I think, what we're going to be seeing in this passage. Now, you might be asking, like, where are we getting love out of this? Well, uh, earlier in this passage, obviously, Peter preached on the fruits of the Spirit. The first fruit of the Spirit is love, potentially the most important one. I'm not going to make an argument that it's the only one, but uh, a fruit of the Spirit essential to this passage to actually work is love. The other fruits of the Spirit actually kind of crop up through this passage as well. They, they kind of come up of... How, how are you generous or how are you kind to other people? Well, you bear each other's burdens, that sort of thing. So we're going to get into that. But essential to this passage is that to love like Jesus is to be a community like Jesus. So how do we love like Jesus? You guys cool? We're tracking. We're going to jump here in verse 1 to 5. Bauer covered this last week for us, so I'm just going to give us an overview of what we talked a little bit about and then kind of pull out some parts that I think are essential for us. How do we love like Jesus? The first thing is to support the burden. Verses 1 to 5, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, right? And we read that last week. That's not carnal and spiritual Christians. That's just if you're in Jesus, you're spiritual, period, right? That's not grades of Christians. If you're, if you're in Jesus, you are a spiritual person. You've been renewed by the Spirit. You who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Right? So first of all, he starts out, it's never a small thing when Paul says brothers and sisters. Right? He is, by, def- by definition, he is defining who's in view here. It's the fam of Jesus. Right? If you're in Jesus, that's who we're talking about. And the swoop of this is restoration for somebody who's fallen into sin with the provision that you keep yourself in check. Right? That you make sure that you're not the one who's adding to their burden. In fact, you're coming alongside them as your family in Jesus. Right? Here's the thing. We can't be shocked by Christians behaving badly. <laughs> it's on the entry exam. How do you become a Christian? Why do you need Jesus? Question one, are you a bad person? <laughs> or are you a sinner? Or have you messed up? Um, if you check no, you don't get to question two. You don't get to become a Christian. <laughs> right? To become a Christian is to say, I am messed up, period. Right? That's the entry exam. And so then it's not as though somehow when you become a Christian, it's like, I'm going to stop messing up. That's what he's, he's talking about here. And he's saying, listen, if you don't think that you're capable of sin or capable of make major mistakes or failures or whatever, you've got to revisit why are you a Christian? Because you're a failure. <laughs> you need Jesus. That's, that's the gate. That's the entry gate to becoming a Christian. But the aim of now how we treat people who fail is not to kind of like cancel culture them out and say, ah, you know what? I'm really going to smother your face in this and then kick you out of the church. It's actually to aim at restoration. Brothers, restore. Remember how Bauer pulled out for us last week? I thought that was a fascinating uh, image on re- restoration. It was at the end of the day, fishermen would fix their nets. That the word for fixing their nets was restore, and that's what he's talking about here. Bringing healing for people, spiritual healing for people in their sin. What I want to do is I want to tug on verse 2 here. I'm sure you're getting this by, by the, the, the section heading for... Uh, for supporting the burden. But verse 2 here, the verse 2 here, uh, when we read verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If there's anything 
that's incredible about this passage is basically giving you an equation, right? It's like, um, if you do this, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Well, being a Christian, I want to fulfill the law of Christ. What's the equation? Well, that word burden, I want to pull it out because the tone of that word is a little flattened in the English Standard Version. The tone of that word is oppressive burdens. It's not just burden. It's an oppressive burden. An oppressive burden, then, is not just kind of like, well, you know what? I really struggle with anger. An oppressive, because he's just talked about sin. Like he's, he's dealt with that category. But burden is something different than just sin. Sin certainly can be a burden. You know, things that I'm regularly, like habitual sins that I struggle with, with uh, committing. But also, it can just be your own physical health, your mental health, your family stress, the coworker you don't like, you know, the neighbor that, that revs his motorcycle at 5.30 in the morning, you know, and you're just kind of like, I just, I really, I want a bazooka right now. I, I want a license for a bazooka. Uh, the burdens that we carry with, I mean, for the COVID thing, like it's certainly been a, a burden. Oppressive burdens are anything that does not go away easily or quickly, and it's nothing that you can do about it, right? It may be a loss that you've experienced. It's a burden to continue to remember losses. It may be unfulfilled dreams. It is certainly any way in which you experience the human condition is basically an oppressive burden, something you cannot get away from quickly or easily. That's what I think Paul is talking about here. This last week in our small group, we talked about what does it mean, um, how do you carry burdens, and how do you identify them? Like, what does that even mean? We were just kind of, we were circling around this question because it is a little confusing. All right carry each other's burdens. Well, what does that, what does that mean? Carry each other's burdens. Like a burden, like a burden for us is obviously, you know, how do you identify what a burden is? Well, in a certain sense, there's an emotional sense of when I go on a hike, like I remember one time I went on a hike with my kids and I carried, I can talk about this because it's funny for me, um, Owen on my back we go up the hill all the way, and the next day I threw my back out, right? Well, I carried a burden and it had an effect on me. Identifying what burdens are is identifying the things that have an effect on us long term. We kind of, we're kind of working around that idea. Burdens are things that bring you low. Burdens are things that inherently, I'm not, humiliate is not, I don't mean humiliate in the shameful way, but burdens are things that are inherently humbling to us. They're things that we cannot fix. They're things that we cannot get rid of. So why do we need burdens? What is it, why, why, is it, why are burdens essential to our life in Jesus? If we're in Jesus, shouldn't we get rid of all burdens and live free and happy lives without burdens? Verse 3 to 5, I think Paul gives us an idea of this. For anyone, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each, let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. In effect, what Paul is saying is, if you think you're something special, which we all want to think in one way or the other, the reason we have burdens in our lives is to remind us that we are frail and human. A part of the reason we have burdens in our lives is that we do not have the ability to fix our lives on our own terms, right? Ultimately, the reason burdens exist is to set, help us recognize I'm not as strong, like, uh, I'm not as strong, wise, uh, holy, good as I thought I was. 
right? We, can, we all have these experiences. I don't use this illustration to say that marriage is the only way to see this, but certainly anybody who's been married for three weeks recognizes that you are a selfish jerk, right? There's certainly ways people who are not married can experience that in numerous ways. But the moment you've been married for th- three weeks, you're just kind of like, I don't, I'm just a jerk. I, I am a jerk, and they're a jerk, you know? Like, <laughs> it's just, that's one of the purposes of marriage. It's a burden. I'm kidding, sorry. Um, <laughs> we actually need burdens to see ourselves for who we are. We need burdens to see ourselves for who we are before the Lord himself. So before we kind of move on, one of the things I started asking, kind of processing through this question we had our MC, how do we see burdens, how do we carry each other's burdens, was to ask, which book in the Bible talks about burdens the most? Which book in the Bible frames the categories of burdens most frequently for us, helps us see what burdens are? And I think, you guys are not going to be surprised with this answer, I think the book of the Psalms is where we find our burdens articulated most clearly and helpfully and just with human categories, right? If you struggle with depression, that's a burden. Psalm 88, it ends by saying, darkness is my only friend. That is the experience, the burden of depression, isn't it? If you have family troubles, right? If you feel like you've been misunderstood, or you feel like your family is just constantly in strife with each other, right? Psalm 2710, my mother and my father have forsaken me, right? I don't know if David's actual mother or father forsook him, but the, arti- the, the experience of being forsaken by the people who are closest to you, by being at division with each other, right? Uh, if you're feeling distant with God, if you feel really numb in your relationship with God, that's a burdened experience. Psalm 63, 1, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you. We, we recite that sometimes as kind of like this like positive image, but you're talking about a deer in the desert panting for water. That's like that's a life or death situation, right? That's not just kind of like, I just really had a quiet time this morning. No, no, no. That, the satisfaction of receiving the, getting the water, but the experience is, God, my relationship with you feels like I'm in a drought. That's what Psalm 63.1 is talking about, right? Or looking at the forms of injustice in our lives, right? People who lie, cheat, steal, and work the power systems of, this, of the court or the culture or the workplace that we're in. Psalm 55 or Psalm 58, if you feel betrayed by other people around you, these are all burdened experiences that the Psalms get us into. So the reason I bring this up is just to say, how do we work to carry to support the burden around us? First things first, it is helpful to get to know our Bibles better. So if you're looking for a way to get to know the Psalms, I, uh, Aaron Sanford got me onto this. Uh, Anglican Compass puts out the daily office. You can get it for free. It's online. You pray through the Psalms in like two months, or you can pray through them in a month. Just having a system of being around the Psalms on a regular basis helps us to think through what does it mean to know the categories of being burdened. So then how do we then take knowing those categories and go to other people around us? Certainly, I'm not recommending, you know what, you need to go to the depressed person and say, you know what, here's a Bible verse, now you're better. That's not, that's not the way we respond to people around us. The way we respond, say, okay, I know the categories, or I'm learning the categories, I've listened to God's word. In order to understand somebody else's burden, we need to listen to them. Are we listening to the people around us? Are we listening to who they are and what's going on with them? Having, have, listening to them describe their life experience. It's one thing to think, for example, um, it seems like the court system is a little unfair. 
It's another thing to sit down with somebody who's been in court day after day, week after week, month after month, and to continually feel things keep going the wrong way. This is unjust. That's a different burden experience than just kind of knowing it. And you don't get to knowing that experience without listening. So when we listen, we begin to understand people feel seen and heard. I mean, often the solution to burdens is not even to bring a physical solution. I mean, if you're hungry, let's go get a burger, whatever. Or if you're a vegan, let's go, I don't know, get a salad or something, you know. But the solution is often not being heard, not being understood, not being seen and cherished. And how do we do that? It's by learning the songs of Jesus, the Psalms, to see the burdens that Jesus has already carried for this person and for us, and then learning to be beside them. That's how we carry burdens. It's not, it's not even just like doing much, praying for people. Who's one person in your, week, in your life this week that you know what's going on in their life, that you can just communicate, I'm beside you in this burden. I see you and I care about you. It can just be as simple as a text. It can just be as simple as, do you want to go to lunch? Do you want to watch a movie? Do you want to go to the beach? You know, whatever it is. Communicating with each other is how we begin to then carry and support each other and love like Jesus. Okay. You guys cool? All right. We're going to move on because we've got three other things to see. How do we love like Jesus? We support the burden. Second thing, how do we love like Jesus? We supply for shepherds. I want to pull out this verse and we'll kind of talk through it. Let each one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So, is this verse in here so that when preachers like me get up and say, we're preaching through the book of Galatians, I can say, now give me your money. <laughs> no, it's not why it's here. It doesn't even really, like, at first glance, it does seem a bit of a shocking passage in the sense of like, it doesn't really naturally follow in a certain sense, right? Bear each other's burdens, supply for those, walk with those um, who are caught in transgression and sin, make sure that you know yourself, that you're self-aware of who you are, pay your pastor, God's not going to be mocked. I like, guess just like a weird verse, right? <laughs> Here's what I think from, from not only living the life of a pastor for the last, I don't know, eight years or whatever, but... Um, thinking through what Paul's doing here. I think when Paul is talking about care for each other, care for each other, make sure that each other is healthy and working together in Jesus, his mind then goes to, how do you learn to do that? So then, verse 6, the one who is taught the word shall share all good things with the one who teaches. I will say, in my experience of pastoral ministry, the context for how people grow in loving Jesus is very often me, Peter, David, sitting beside them in their burdens and helping them to learn to bear their burdens in Jesus together. The call of pastoral ministry is often to be the lead burden bearer in the church or the, the set of burden bearers. It's not a solo job. To be a pastor is to bear each other's, is to lead each other and to teach each other how to bear burdens. The chief calling of being a shepherd is often to teach others how to bear their burdens in Christ and to do so primarily in doing it beside them. 
in bearing their burdens with them. If you can't do that, you can't be a pastor. I don't care how good a sermon you can preach. That's the nature of what it means to be a pastor. So that's why when Paul, I think, in my mind, when Paul's talking about bearing each other's burdens, walking beside each other's burdens, he immediately goes to thinking, how do you learn to do that? You learn to do that by having uh, competent pastors beside you, helping you walk this life in Jesus together. So, for example, uh, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, I think speaks to this uh, dynamic. Before I read this, I'll just say this is a passage, as far as I can remember, uh, that David, Peter, and I, we read at the beginning of every elders' meeting. This sets the tone of an elders' meeting. It's, it exposes us to confess anything that we need to talk through and to set our priorities straight. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, not as God. The reason we read this passage is because it exposes some of the, 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 the practical functional dynamics of pastoral ministry. I do not like when people laud, oh, being a pastor is so hard. Oh my gosh, how do you do it? I'm like, it's a job like anybody else's job. I'm like, it's, it's a job, right? It, it has pressures and it's hard. It has unique challenges for sure because, I mean, like, you know, the, just the way you, you know, people are people, you know? <laughs> It's, it's a, it has unique challenges, but it's not so hard that nobody can do it. And I don't like when people excessively talk about how hard it is. But this passage does talk about some of the unique temptations of being a pastor, right? Not getting your way, seeing something that needs to happen, wanting to uh, move the, the church forward. Well, you know what? I'm just going to domineer. I'm just going to yell and scream and make sure that it happens and it gets done. Maybe you've experienced that pastoral ministry, right? Uh, this is... People can be a little bit frustrating, and you know what? It's just a drag to do this job. Well, he talks about that, right? Don't, do, don't elder out of compulsion. I'm like, well, I guess I'll do it, <laughs> you know? Uh, and there's certainly a way in which you can be in a position of power and manipulate and exploit people for shameful gain. Get whatever it is you want. Free vacations, cars, read the headlines. I'm sure you can think of pastors who've had that given to them. You know, this is, I think, the reason this is here is because it's, it's similar to what Paul is talking about here in Galatians 6. Burdens are tempting for pastors. The way I've often described pastoral ministry for people is I enter into the room of somebody's uh, burdens and sufferings and sin. I help them find grace and mercy in Jesus and a direction forward. I step out of the room, and then I step into the room of somebody else's life, and I do it from Monday to Tuesday, one day to the next. That person, they've got their life in their week. This person had their life in their week, and I just kind of go from one to the next. And Peter and David do the same thing. You enter and exit into each person's burdens and sorrows from one day to the next. And I think what Paul is doing here is just simply saying, one way to remove a temptation for your pastors and your shepherds, and I'm saying this in a general sense so it's not personalized to me, is to make sure that they're cared for and provided for making sure that they're supplied for in their life in Jesus. So I think that's why this passage is here. Is that, if that's not a convincing apologetic for you, I'd love to hear your explanation for it. I, I genuinely would. I guess that's not like a, a challenge or anything like that. It's just I'm trying to make sense of why this passage is here. And so I think what Paul is doing here is simply saying, 
as a part of our functional life together, there needs to be a meaningful financial or resource support for the church. In our economy, that's finances. We've got brothers and sisters. At church. I remember hearing about an Acts 29 pastor down in Bolivia, and he got paid with, you know, people tithe their grain and their, here's the, here's the goat, one-tenth of the goats or whatever, you know. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's, that's dinner for a month or whatever, you know, it is. So it, it, it's not... It has to be money, but in our economy, finances represents that. You know? So a meaningful financial support for the church is, I think, what's in view here. I, I think, personally, tithing is a good idea. I don't enforce that, but if you're looking for a metric of kind of where to start, that's a good place to think about and wrestle with what that means for you. But a meaningful financial support for your pastors that helps supply for their burdens and helps enable them to be able to teach other people to bear their burdens in Jesus. I think that's why... Paul has us in here, and I think it's a meaningful way for us to love our church together and to love like Jesus, to be generous with our, with our finances to, to each other. Now, we're going to move on. Uh, if you have any questions about that, um, if we have time, you're free to text or grab me afterwards. So how do we love like Jesus, bear each other's burdens, supply for, our, supply for shepherds? Third thing we're going to see here is sow to the Spirit, verse 7 to 8. 7, 8, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Here we just have to recognize that he is using language that is outside of our normal experience. Between here, I, I walked to church this morning, uh, between my house and the Hope Center, at no point did I pass a, any farmland Garden, barns, cattle, none of it. I didn't pass any of it. Did you guys? I, I saw a couple dogs and cats. <laughs> I, saw some, I, I saw some yards that might have been fields, but no, I'm kidding. Um, they, I, I, just, I didn't see any farms or cattle. It is, these, are, these are images that um, are very much outside of our experience. Farming is grueling work. It's why I don't do it. <laughs> You get up at four in the morning earlier than what I get up. You milk the cow. You, you do the stuff for the, <laughs> the farm animals. You go out into the field. You plow the field. You lay the seed. You tend to the, to the flock. You tend to the crops. You go home for lunch. You do it in the afternoon under the blazing heat or in the pouring rain. You clean the barn bed. You eat your dinner, and you go to bed, and you do it over and over and over and over, hoping that come the end of the season, there's apples or wheat or produce or fruit or whatever, right? And I'm sure as I'm describing this, you guys can tell, this is a city kid, I'm not a rural kid. I don't know, <laughs> but you get the idea. It is not something that we're used to, and yet the image of what he's talking about is a life committed to doing something over and over and over and over again in the hope of receiving what? From the Spirit, reap eternal life. Right? This is an extremely mundane ex expression about the human life, about the Christian life. So to the Spirit. It is a mundane life for a dynamic reward, eternal life. Eugene Peterson, who's becoming a patron saint of mine um, because he's now since dead, uh, Eugene Peterson wrote a book called The Long, Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That's how he describes 
the Christian life. That's what he describes discipleship as. And here is a, a quote from that book. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship and what early generations of Christians called holiness. We live in a Amazon Prime world where we think, you know what, I've prayed, I read my Bible today, I should get Amazon Prime to Christian growth tomorrow. I got angry, I was envious, you know what, I saw it, I prayed about it, tomorrow arrives by the Spirit, my upgrade in holiness that I ordered on Amazon Prime. That's not the way of Christian discipleship. We must sow. And the passage is saying, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For what one sows, they will also reap. We have so many examples, even in the last few years, of public figures, of pastors who have reaped what they sowed. They have fallen out in massive ways, in ways that they sowed to. You know, money, sex, platform, whatever it is, and they reaped the corruption. So then, as we consider what does it mean to sow to the Spirit, what does that mean for us? It is, again, to pull out this farming image, trusting that the good things of God are essential to our spiritual life and our immediate emotional sense of life, or our ex- and not our immediate emotional sense of life or our perception of what's working. That might mean devotions for you, whatever spiritual practices. Again, I just want to commend the daily office, beginning your day, an intentional prayer. Bro, the the prayers are written out for you. You just, you read them, you mean them, and you move on. Evening, you read them, you pray them, you move on. But trusting that when we are committing our lives to intentionally getting more of Jesus on a regular basis, while it may not feel like it's doing much, It is accomplishing great things in our souls. So one question for you as we think about what does it mean to sow to the Spirit? What are you doing right now? Simply to get more of Jesus, period. Not to get more of Jesus, do a Bible study about it later on. Not to do, and this is for me, not to do more, get more of Jesus so you can preach a sermon on it later on. Not to do more of Jesus so you can Instagram it or Facebook it or whatever it is. What are you doing in the unseen life, in the unseen eyes of other people, other people can't see this, but Jesus and I know, I am doing this. I'm reading the Gospel of John. Get the, this like Bible, you know, the thing with the passage on one side and the, the lines on the other. Get one of those and rip it up over a six-month period. It doesn't have to be long time or a short time. It doesn't have to be quick time. What are you doing right now so that you get more of Jesus just because you want him? Not to be seen, not to be lauded, not to be known, but just because you want more of Jesus. I think that's kind of in the direction of what sowing to the Spirit is. Because that's where sowing, getting more of Jesus, getting more of Him. I want more of who He is, what He's like, how He's merciful and compassionate with boneheads like me, people who don't have their act together, how He loves the people that I really don't seem to like very much, how Jesus has very stern things to say about what does it mean to prioritize a spiritual life over, the, of, over material success, etc., over and over again, doing that day in, day out, and especially uh, if you're the primary caretaker for young kids, like even like five minutes is okay. 
That's sowing. It's a continual one day after the next. Sowing, sowing, so that you get more of Jesus. I think that's the direction of what it means to sow to the Spirit. So that then the fruits of the Spirit, the preacher that, that, that Peter preached for us, will eventually come. All right. Verse 9 to 10. How do we love like Jesus? Seeking, seek good for all. So we've just talked about burdens, our shepherds. We've talked about sowing to the Spirit. And finally, we're going to see here, seek good for all. You'll notice here how Paul's direction is your personal kind of immediate community to the wider community around you, right? It kind of goes by degrees out. It goes from me to us to us in our church, our broader tech context, and then to us in our neighborhood. It's kind of the sweep of how this goes. So what does it mean to love like Jesus and seek the good for all? Good, good to all requires love, right? Verse 9 to 10, let us not grow weary. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we, right, when we read the word everyone, everyone means everyone. Everyone includes, right, the guy, the guy who just revs his engine while he drives by, right? Want to do good for that guy too? Uh, want to do good um, to, to the neighbors that annoy you, to the family that's against you. We want to do good to our spouse that we may not enjoy or like at the moment. <laughs> we want to do good to um, our neighbors around us. We want to do good to the people who are in a different political party than us. We want to do good to people who vote differently than us. We want to do good for people who have different lifestyles than us. We want to do good to people who put weird lawn ornaments in their yard. We want to do good for the coworker in our, in our, you know, that just has the weird desk set up or the weird background in their Zoom meeting or whatever. We want to do good for the kid in class at the very end of class who asks, what's the homework? Right? We want to even do good for that guy, even though he's being annoying by asking about homework at the end of class. You know, we want to do good for everybody. Everybody means literally everybody. Henry Nowen, again, another guy who's becoming a saint of mine, also dead. He comments this. In 1988, he said this. Why do human beings learn so much so soon about technology and so little so late about loving one another? He's commenting before the iPhone, right? 20 plus years before the iPhone. More, 30, almost 30 years before the iPhone. 25, whatever. I'm sure somebody can correct me. He's commenting and saying, we study technology because it is so fascinating and so alluring, and we get to know the ins and outs, and we press this button, this wire goes there, and all this stuff, and yet we cannot even spend the amount of time it takes to study, listen, know, and love our neighbors. To the people that, by God's providence, live right next to me. This passage is readjusting us to love like Jesus is, and if you read through the Gospels, you'll notice Jesus embraces everybody right as they come, right up in his grill. He is loving the people that are immediately around him, which also means that this does engage our politics. Now, again, I don't preach politics in terms of, like, Republican, Democrat, whatever. Don't care. And if you're libertarian, hold your role, okay? So... What this means is that our politics must be shaped by an intentional and purposeful loving each other and our neighbors for their good. That doesn't mean selective groups, the, the good of these people, not the good of these people. This engages how we think about our 
and not even talking about voting, just our lives within the public. That's what the word politics mean, right? Within the public. To love others for their good so that they experience our actions and our intentions as good. That doesn't mean that we're always going to be understood correctly or rightly or whatever, but it does mean that we orient towards other people so that we are aiming at their good. This is the awkward and profound mission of God's people, to do good, right? It's not to think good. (laughs) It's not to make a Facebook post good. It's not even to pray good. It is to do good. That's why I'm saying this engages our politics, because it is our action. Now, again, we don't talk, I don't tell you how to vote or anything like that. But this does, if you're looking at this and you're saying, do good, that includes your cultural, civic, everything that you do in your life and how you engage the other people around you. That is your public life as a Christian. And it is saying, the command is, do good. Make sure that they are the other people around you are flourishing, happy, healthy, safe, etc. Right? It's aiming at those actions of your life. And what this means, along with everything else in this passage, you will notice that all the images in, mute, in view and what we've been talking about thus far has had this very frustrating, exhausting category over all of them that frustrating, exhausting category that rules over all the things we've talked about thus far is time. Time is frustrating and exhausting. It takes time to sow. It takes time to supply. It takes time to study and know your neighbors around you so that you know how to do good for them. It takes time to restore people to spiritual health and wholeness. It takes time to get to know yourself and who you are in front of your living God. It takes time to love like Jesus, and that's okay. That means, to the extent that we are aiming to know Jesus more, we will continue to need moments of refreshing grace from him. I don't think these verses are intended to be a burden upon us. They give us direction. They certainly give the Galatian church direction of what you're supposed to do after you work through all the arguments and you've figured out. Remember, this book has been all about what is this free grace in Jesus. He doesn't look to you to make sure that you, you circumcise, um, that you baptize on the right, in the right way, and that you worship on the right day, and that you don't mix your polyesters. You're not trying to create a to-do list of what it means to be a Christian. You are living out of being loved for being a total bonehead and ha- being weak and frail. That's where Jesus engages you. You don't have your act together. But he loves you, and the way he loves you now defines who you are and how you love other people, how you love the church around you, how you love the neighborhood that you're involved in. It is all aiming at knowing and enjoying who Jesus is, not to get his love, but living out of this free grace and love that he's given us. That's what this whole book has been about. So as we end it with these sort of commands and saying, here's what the life of the church should be like, and we know that we don't quite live up to this, but we want to, The power, the engine, is already in the book that we've looked at thus far. God is a free, grace-giving, overabundant, giving God himself forever and always ever. Amen. That's who he is. And so when it comes to living like Jesus, to be a community like Jesus, we don't love like Jesus to get his love. We love because we've been loved and given the Spirit. This is what it means to be a church like Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, 
love like Jesus, to be a community like Jesus. Amen? Father, as we've looked at these passages together and we've considered what does it mean to be like you, I pray that as we've experienced um, a reminder by your Spirit of what this looks like, that you would fill us afresh of a taste of your free, good, empowering, freeing love for the glory of Jesus here in Manchester and beyond. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.